Hello, welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The topic today is the current herbicide carryover risk scenario and what this could mean for crop rotation decisions in 2022. The recording comes to us courtesy of a collaboration from three Saskatchewan commodity organizations, Sask Canola, Sask Wheat, and Saskatchewan Pulse Growers. The three hosts are... My name is Sarah Anderson, and I'm the Agronomy Manager with SPG. My name is Haley Tatro, and I'm the Agronomy Extension Specialist with the Sask Wheat Development Commission. My name is Kaylee Kondracic, and I am the Agronomy Extension Specialist with Sask Canola. I hand it over to Sarah, Haley, and Keeley. Keeley leads off with an introduction of their guest, Clark Brenzel. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Clark Brenzel, Provincial Specialist in Weed Control with the Government of Saskatchewan. In this episode, we will discuss herbicide carryover with emphasis on Group 2 imidazoline actives and highlight some of the risk considerations for growers as they build their 2022 crop rotations. Welcome, Clark, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on today, Kaylee. So, Clark, we're excited to have you on the podcast today. We've got a big lineup of questions for you. Um, so I'll just jump right in. Uh, herbicide caribou seems to be making headlines and creating a buzz this fall after the extremely dry season we've been through and with little to no notable precipitation in many areas yet to fall this fall. Um, can you give us a bit of an overview on what herbicide carryover is and which herbicides are the highest risk for herbicide carryover? Sure. Uh, when we apply herbicides, there's only a portion of the spray that actually hits the plants, whether that be the weeds or the crops. And a good portion of that spray continues on past those and, and lands on the soil. Uh, some herbicides are very strongly bound to soil particles, and so they're not available for plants to take up by the roots, but there's other herbicides um, that are not very strongly bound. And so those ones are available for, for plants to take up by the roots, uh, particularly after rainfall events. So those seem to be triggers for uh, injury events following uh, residual herbicide carryover uh, that's unexpected. Uh, on the other side of the equation, we've got some herbicides that break down very quickly and others that don't break down so quickly. And so those ones that don't break down very quickly are some of the ones that are, that are at higher risk of, of carryover and at a little bit higher risk of unexpected carryover issues uh, going into following years. Typically, companies will just determine the, the safe crops to grow after a particular herbicide in more or less typical years, so typical growing conditions, um, adequate moisture for growing crops, things like that. And generally that's because that's the conditions that most of those herbicides are going to be used under. So it's it they don't go particularly looking for conditions like we're experiencing now in order to figure out what crops might be sensitive under those very dry conditions as well. Um, and then what happens is that those companies have to provide that data uh, on safe recropping options to the Pest Management Regulatory Agency of Health Canada, uh, also known as the PMRA. Um, and then they include that on the product label. 
And so if they know about the potential for extended carryover under dry conditions, they can include some types of um, restrictions or qualifications on uh, those crops that might be more sensitive after dry conditions uh, on the label. And we see some of those on, on certain products. So you touched a little bit on it there, but how does drought actually impact herbicide degradation? Herbicides break down primarily through one of a couple of processes. And the, the two that are real key are chemical hydrolysis and microbial breakdown. Um, microbial uh, digestion is kind of a mouthful, uh, is the most common pathway uh, for most herbicides. And essentially it's microbes in the soil use that herbicide uh, in the soil as a food source. And so all these herbicides are made up of compounds that are created out of carbons and phosphorus and sulfurs and things like that. And so these microbes will use all those molecules as, as nutrients and, and energy sources. Um, so they scavenge those components after they cleave these, uh, these compounds apart. Um, once they start cleaving them, then they become less herbicidally active in the soil. Um, as with most, most microbial growth, it's going to require moisture um, and it needs to be in relatively plentiful supply in order for that microbial growth to flourish and, and grow. And there is a, a growth period that's required there. If there isn't plentiful moisture, then they go into a state of dormancy. And so they'll just sit there and they won't do anything under those dry conditions. Um, in most cases, those microbes are or aerobic or oxygen loving. Um, and they, so they require oxygen to do the things that they're, they're going to do with the herbicides. And so that means that most of the breakdown is going to occur within the top maybe inch and a bit of soil, uh, but not a whole lot deeper than that. And so what that means is that that soil surface is the area that needs to be moist in order for those herbicides to break down at an optimum rate. There are some um, herbicides that are broken down very quickly under anaerobic conditions or flooded soil conditions. And these are typically the group three chemistries like edge and trifluralin. Um, and that's why historically we've seen those, what we refer to as bathtub rings of wild oats around sloughy areas um, when these products get used. And it's essentially, it's, been flooded, it's broken down very quickly, it's disappeared from the soil, and so um, it's not active anymore in the soil. So um, the other common breakdown pathway is called chemical or acid hydrolysis, and it affects a small subset of herbicides uh, like triazines, like atrazine, for example, and certain sulfonylurea group 2 herbicides. Not all of them necessarily, but uh, there's a good group of them that, that do utilize that pathway. In this case, what happens is the water molecule itself reacts with that herbicide molecule and cleaves it into pieces that are not plant phytotoxic. And so it makes it so that they're not herbicidally active after that point. Um, a good indicator of herbicides that are these types are ones that um, have warnings about being left in the sprayer for any significant amount of time. And as a result of being left in the sprayer, they become deactivated and they end up not being any good anymore. 
Um, so that's a pretty good indicator of which ones we're talking about. Um, and there are plenty of those herbicides that use both pathways for breakdown as well. So we may have certain herbicides that break down using both hydrolysis and microbial digestion uh, as a pathway. Anyway, so get back to the original question. Both of these processes rely heavily on moisture being available in the soil. And so relatively close to the soil surface where those herbicides are going to be as well. Um, they also need, the moisture also needs to be there for a significantly long enough portion or time frame in the season, in the growing season to, that the herbicides were applied uh, for them to break down predictably enough so that they can be confident which crops are going to tol be tolerated next year, essentially. Um, and in some cases that also includes winter cereals. So um, as a rule, we consider that prime breakdown period to be June, July, and August. And that's essentially when the soil temperatures are warm enough to support that microbial activity or that chemical breakdown activity. So if you have growing seasons, uh, like we've had in the four of the last five uh, years where moisture is less than ideal, uh, we may have more of that herbicide left in the soil that uh, will carry over and cause surprises essentially for those crops that are kind of marginally tolerant that may have been okay under decent soil moisture conditions. But now that we've had less than optimal soil moisture, uh, there's too much of that material around the left for them to be uh, safe to grow. We, uh, we saw a significant amount of regrowth, especially with canola this fall, and many producers fall applied soil active herbicides, and some will do so in the spring to come. Um, so is there a high risk of crop injury following some of these residual products? Um, fall, the fall herbicides follow, follow similar rules to um, things that are applied in season. Um, essentially, they also require moisture um, adequate temperatures um, and time, essentially, to break down. Um, the advantage to most of those post-harvest herbicides that might get used in those situations are that they're relatively short-lived in the soil. Um, and essentially, it's because they break down quicker. Uh, they, so because they require less time um, for soils to be moist, then if we have early spring moisture as a result of snow melt or uh, early spring rains, or we have a, a late fall rainfall, then they can take advantage of those things and, and break down fairly quickly as a result of those and be lost from the environment. And so not really cause a whole lot in the way of surprises. Um, when we're in a dry climate, yeah, they do have the advantage of those things like meltwater and moisture on the shoulder seasons, but it's always a good idea to touch base with the manufacturers just to make sure that there aren't going to be any additional issues. Um, some of the soil active herbicides that might get applied in the fall um, for managing weeds in next year's crop uh, may have some advantages as, again because of those those moisture events like snow melt and early season rain and things like that um, 
and because of the extended fall, it may be a handy time to actually put those things on and take advantage of some of that moisture for incorporation for the next year and good activity going into next year. Um, and then to get ahead to start on the, the breakdown process as well. So from that perspective, applying some low soil active products in the fall is probably not a bad idea either. Um, Clark, you touched on earlier about the prime breakdown activity being in the months of June, July, and August. Could you just explain that a, a little bit more um, of why those are so so specific to those timeframes um, on manufacturer guidelines? Um, again, those, those months are where you've got warm soil conditions, you've got lots of free water. Um, and so what that's going to do is it's going to either promote um, microbial growth uh, and microbial activity for, for breakdown of those herbicides, or it's going to promote that chemical reaction to take place in the case of hydrolysis. So if we get into those shoulder seasons and we get closer to winter, the soil temperatures drop off. And essentially with biological activity, that stops below about five degrees Celsius in the soil. And so from that point onward, we really don't get any more breakdown through um, the microbial digestion. Um, some of the herbicides that use hydrolysis have a little bit of an edge in, in that kind of situation that they will continue to kind of break down a little bit, maybe not at, at a very fast pace, but they can take advantage of some of those, those sort of cooler conditions a little bit for breakdown when you might not get really good microbial activity. Um, the other thing we want is enough rainfall in one event so that we can really soak the soil surface and, and keep it moist for an extended period of time. Uh, one of the things that we had happen a lot this past year was we had a lot of those little micro showers that kind of went through. They maybe dropped less than a tenth of rain and tenth of an inch of rain. And you came back to that ground again in about half an hour to an hour and it was dry again. And so those rains really don't contribute a whole lot to breakdown. And so when we're accumulating some of that rainfall, it might even be appropriate to eliminate some of those rains as a as part of that accumulate accumulated amount through that growing season as well. So um, so yeah, those are those are a couple of the things uh, that we look for. Um, again, some of the, the hydrolysis type herbicides can take advantage of some of those little short periods where the, the soil moisture is wet. Um, what we have with, with microbes is that when we get moisture, we're gonna have to have a bit of a buildup of that population of microbes in the soil. So it, there's a little bit of a lag time that occurs with uh, microbial digestion. Uh, before it starts kicking in and that's why we don't start that clock until the first of June and that's when we've got microbial populations that are really kind of ticking along at the at the rate that we need to get good herbicide breakdown and so that's why we don't start until June and why we kind of terminate things by the end of August typically. Can you comment maybe specifically this fall we had 
in some areas of the province, not every area, we had a, some showers that came near the end of August into September, and it has been a little bit warmer uh, across September and early part of October. Is there a way to, to calculate that factor in specific to this season, or is it just bonus? Yeah, unfortunately, what happens is that we tend not to have um, the infrastructure in place to really kind of study these things when they happen. And by the time we get that process in motion again, to kind of take advantage of, of those conditions to determine whether that type of thing is going to take place and, and to measure that, the that condition is gone again. So it's really hard to kind of put a real scientific number to it. But it is possible that this fall, because we had some of that rain in mid-August, that um, wet the soil fairly substantially. Um, and we did have warmer conditions extend further into September that we could have gotten a little bit more breakdown out of that. But because that rainfall occurred in August, um, that would be accounted for in our herbicide carryover risk maps that we produce uh, that are on our website. So that would have been included in, in the amounts that are, that are listed on there. Um, we did have a rain here, oh, a week or so ago. Um, it's unlikely that that there'll be enough time following that rainfall and the onset of the cooler conditions this week to really have any effect on herbicide breakdown going forward. So Clark, um, my next question, I guess, has two parts. Um, so crops differ in their sensitivity to IMI residues, but how do they compare to one another? Uh, can you walk us through a general ranking of crops starting with those that are the most risky to plant back into soils with suspected IMI carryover to those that are least risky? Okay, to start out, we kind of have to preface our discussion a little bit um, with the comment that even when we have products within the same chemical family, they can have different spectrums of sensitivity to various plants. So, um, one may be harder on a particular species than another. And so broad brush generalities can be a bit risky, um, but overall we can kind of put a little bit of general discussion into that. Um, the other thing to kind of keep in mind is that although we think of, when we think of the imidazolinone chemistry, we think of those pulse herbicides. We also have to remember that um, the mazimethabens that was sold as a CERT is also an IMI. Um, and it doesn't have the same level of tolerance in pulses that the other ones do. So we've got a selectivity thing there to make generalities about. The other thing to kind of keep in mind is that uh, the imazapur active ingredient that is in Aries, uh, when used at a really low rate in Aries, it's a selective compound. But when it's used in another herbicide called arsenal, it's a non-selective soil residual um, 
soil sterilant type product. So rate has an impact on sensitivity as well. So those are some things that we need to kind of keep in the back of our mind when we're talking about which ones are more or less tolerant. Um, the other thing I want to try and emphasize sort of at this point is that producers try and think of their herbicides along the lines of active ingredients rather than branded products. Um, if we look in our guide to crop protection, we've got 350 crop herbicide brands listed in that book, but it's only 60 active ingredients. So it's gonna be way easier to keep track of those 60 active ingredients than it will be to keep track of those 350 brand names. The other thing is that in those 60 active ingredients, you're probably looking at about half of those that are used on an ongoing basis and a really regular basis with respect to annual cropping in Saskatchewan. And there's a bunch of them in there that are corn herbicides that are used primarily in Manitoba. Um, there are a, a bunch of them in there that are range and pasture products as well. So we can probably knock off another 20 to 30 of those 60 uh, for those reasons as well. So just to kind of keep that in mind. And so I encourage producers to think of active ingredients because um, just because they, they haven't heard of heard from their generic manufacturer that that their brands of products may be at risk, whereas they've heard from the proprietary manufacturers in the news. Um, it doesn't mean that those ones that are generic products are at any less risk. It just means that that generic company may have less capacity to really understand the, the active ingredient that they have in their, in their stable and um, have less infrastructure available to support that product and support the ongoing use of that product. So what I would suggest to producers is to look in our guide to crop protection. Um, there are several spots there where they can look up information that may help them figure some of this stuff out. Uh, one, they can look up products um, that have a particular active ingredient on page 17. There's a big chart in there that starts on page 17. They can uh, compare products on uh, another table, table eight on page 49. Uh, that has a bunch of products that, that kind of compare one-on-one -on -one to each other. Um, they also may want to check the normal recropping intervals for residu residual products on page 84. Uh, there's a table there of all the residual products. And then what they may want to do is use the index in the front of the guide to look up the product that they've used in the past, find out what the active ingredient is, compare that to the other products that might be listed on that page if that was a generic that they were using and see if it matches up with any of these uh, products that have been in the news lately. So um, that's, that's one thing that producers that are using generic products can do to kind of help themselves out. Um, okay, again, to get back to the original question, 
Um, the most sensitive family of plants to pretty much any group two herbicide are going to be members of the mustard family. Um, so that would be things like uh, canola and the mustards um, and the specialty mustards as well. So things like camelina and things like that are all going to be just as sensitive as wild mustard. Um, next are other small seeded crops like flax and canary seed. Uh, those are going to be very sensitive and canary seed probably rings a bell because that's one of the ones that that stood out in the letter from BASF. Um, and then once we get into the cereals, uh, going in order from least tolerant to most tolerant would be oats, then durum and barley are roughly the same, and then spring wheat is the most tolerant. Um, I'm not as certain about the relative tolerance of things like rye and triticale. Again, as minor crops, there's less work that's done on those. So those are gonna be a little bit more shrouded in mystery. Um, and then once we get into sort of the pulse herbicides, those pulse crops are going to be very tolerant soil residues as well. Um, and then finally, any clear field varieties of, of crops. So things like clear field wheat and canola and, and lentils and things like that are all gonna be very tolerant as well. So those are gonna be uh, the most tolerant recrop choices, probably in the, the sort of pulse and, and clear field uh, crop line. So let's maybe touch a little bit about um, the actual damage. So uh, say in general, if a crop is um, showing signs of herbicide carryover damage, is that damage done once the plant starts to exhibit symptoms or can it kind of outgrow or compensate for that damage a little bit? Crops are really pretty resilient when it comes to herbicide damage. And if you get just kind of a one-off drift event, they can usually recover pretty pretty well, um, surprisingly well, actually. In some cases, they yield areas that weren't exposed to that herbicide, which is kind of an odd concept, but that's what, what we find in the research that shows up from time to time. The challenge with soil residues is that it's not just a one-off. It's ongoing and it's relentless and it, it keeps re-exposing the plant over and over again every time it rains because every time it rains, that compound is released from the soil again into the soil water where the roots pick it up and the plant takes it up and is re-exposed all over again. So that's, that's the, the, the real challenge with soil residues. Um, sure, good growing conditions without a heavy rainfall event um, will definitely help affected crops. Um, they won't be as badly affected if they're suffering from other stresses like drought or other environmental stresses. Um, but again, that repeated exposure from like fairly heavy rainfalls and release of things into the environment that that can cause um, a bit of a problem. Certain soils are are more inclined to have damage than others. Uh, organic matter and clay content of the soil will help tie up some of that herbicide and prevent uh, injury in some soils. So um, sandy soils with low organic matter are the highest risk of injury and 
in heavy clay soils with high organic matter are the lowest risk. Um, there's even going to be differences show up within fields. And so your high spots that are light soils with low organic matter may be injured, whereas the low areas of the field may have no injury at all. So you're gonna see a little bit of variability from that perspective as well. The other thing that has a big impact is soil pH. And in, in the case of those herbicides that break down via hydrolysis, it impacts how they break down. And so uh, the sulfonylureas that I talked about that use hydrolysis primarily as their, their only breakdown pathway are very affected when you get into high pH soils. So they don't break down hardly at all. Whereas the imidazolinone herbicides are bound up really tightly uh, in low pH soils. So if you get into acid soils of less than 6.5 pH, you can have extended carryover in those soils as well. And that's what we find in Northwest Saskatchewan is we have acid soils. And so we have problems with more carryover in those regions of the province. So are there any management practices that we can use to kind of mitigate the risk of crop damage due to herbicide carryover, like, you know, seeding rate or, or different fertility applications or any input decisions? Um, for the damage itself, other than selecting a tolerant crop and trying to maintain that crop as healthy as possible um, under the conditions that we have, uh, there's no real magic solutions for uh, mitigating these things. Um, there's nothing from a bottle that's going to fix any of these problems. It's, it's something that's there and it's something that has to be dealt with through uh, essentially cropping choices. Um, so conservative cropping choices will minimize the, the risk of injury from these residues. Um, the other thing you can do is just make sure that you are growing a healthy crop um, don't cheat it on any herbicide or any, um, particular input, um, just to allow it to have the best chance, uh, going forward that you can. Clark, should growers be concerned about group two stacking? Um, like for example, will application of a pre-burn product containing a group two component have an additive impact on crops that might be already experiencing any imidazoline carryover? Um, what you're describing, I would kind of look at as a kind of stress loading uh, as much as it would be stacking. Uh, the classical concept, concept of stacking uh, involves the repeated use of the same residual chemical over and over again. And the classic example of that is atrazine use on corn, where they would put big rates of atrazine on a corn crop, and then all they could grow the next year is corn, and they would come back with big rates of atrazine again. And essentially, the example would be, let's say you put four kilograms an acre of atrazine on a corn field, and then three quarters of it breaks down through that year you're left with uh, a kilogram for next year you put on another four kilograms and now you've got the equivalent of five kilograms of of herbicide that you have to break down and then five and a quarter the year after that and it just keeps going and going and going as you uh, build up that residue in the soil 
And so eventually they kind of got to the point where they could only grow corn and they had, in order to get out of corn, they had to figure out some alternative herbicide to kind of get out of that rotation. Um, and they may have had to sacrifice some of their weed control in order to do that. We haven't really experienced a whole lot of this on the prairies, um, short of the old glean and ally days of the continuous wheat era, uh, back before most of us were born. Um, is there potential for that now? Yeah, sure. Um, if we ignore the restrictions on some of the herbicides that have uh, restrictions on back-to-back -back use um, on their labels, a good example, of this is something like sulfentrazone or authority, uh, where you can only use it and um, you're not supposed to use it in back-to-back -back years, let's put it that way. And they also, that herbicide also has multi-year restrictions for some uh, cropping options. Under extremely dry conditions like we've had, uh, what we may have to do is add a year to those restrictions. So instead of one year between sulfentrazone years, you may have to have two years between sulfentrazone years. Um, and for some of those recropping options to be safe, we may have to add another year out for it to be uh, safe to regrow. So. Um, we, we do have the potential for that to happen, but a lot of that has been accounted for in the way that the labels have been uh, constructed now as well. Uh, regarding the, the idea that you're uh, talking about with the additive stress idea, there was some work that was done at the University of Saskatchewan where they looked at an Aussie application that followed um, on peas that followed a uh, wheat crop that had uh, Everest on it or um, Fucarbazone. And essentially what they were able to find there is that they didn't see any additive effect of those products. Um, and the report that we were getting from producers that they saw injury after they applied their Odyssey was essentially a trick of the timing of the occurrence of the injury from the Everest. And so they saw injury on the Everest plots for whether they had Odyssey on them or not. So, and it wasn't any more when they had the Odyssey on top of it. So have we seen, again, that comes back to that sort of discussion about being able to turn around funding in time to do research in situations where we may have environmental challenges. Um, so saying all that, any additional stress on the plant when it's trying to cope with herbicide residue, whether that be another herbicide, uh, stress from another herbicide or environmental stress um, can make the symptoms from that soil residue more severe. Um, I've seen situations where in test plots where we saw pursuit applied as a soil act, soil applied before seeding lentils um, on an area where there was infinity applied the year before. And lentils as a result of this research are not 
uh, an eligible recrop for infinity, and that's why. Um, but what we saw was that the pursuit injury was more pronounced where there was also infinity injury. And so that is showing the accumulation of the stress of those two things uh, going hand in hand uh, on that plant. Um, Clark, you kind of um, touched on this, but I'm wondering if you might be able to expand a little bit. So uh, in your experience, um, are there any uh, other herbicides or combinations of herbicides that we might want to watch out for for next year? I think the main message is, is don't take any unnecessary chances on risky management practices. Um, when you're dealing with fields that are at high risk of extended carryover. Um, if you know that you've put a group two on that field in the previous year that could be carrying over into the current year, maybe avoid a group two in the in the pre-seed burnoff or avoid a group two on your in-crop application. So just, just to avoid any unnecessary exposure to um, the accumulated effects of, of some of these things. Uh, Clark, we've focused on IMI herbicides, but what are some other herbicides that we should keep on the radar in terms of potential recrop restrictions? Yeah, unfortunately, BASF with their imidazolid products and, and recently announced Corteva with their IMI products and clopyrrolid-based products aren't the only companies with residual herbicides uh, where dry conditions could impact how the product breaks down and potential safety of crops that follow them. Um, I've already mentioned a couple of these in, in uh, pre earlier discussions. So things like sulfentrazone from FMC, uh, flucarbazone in Everest from uh, UPL, and pyrosulfatol in Infinity from Bayer. Uh, last year, we saw some situations where command or the active clomazone uh, from FMC was observed to carry over in cereals. Um, we also have historically seen, uh, metribuzin that's in Sencor, um, have tendency for injury to follow crops under dry conditions. And if, uh, producers want to check out the, that, uh, chart on page 84 of our guide crop protection, that gives a, a full overview of all the herbicides that would be considered to be residual, um, under our conditions. You had mentioned earlier just on field variability, and I guess I wanted to touch on a popular question we get about producers being able to measure uh, soil residual herbicides through soil testing. Um, is this possible? And if so, is it a good way to measure risk? Um, because of the way that soils differ and the way that they react to soil residues, they're like herbicide residues. There's, there's no one perfect laboratory testing option that can predict uh, with any level of certainty whether a crop is going to be injured or not. Um, we've got some really great technology now for detecting pesticide residues and we can detect things to a very, very high level of accuracy using liquid or gas chromatography and mass spectrometry and things like that. And we can run them through all these processes and they're really expensive and they come out with a really exact number. 
But the problem is, is that that number isn't very good for anything because it doesn't take into account those other factors in the soil, like the clay and organic matter and the, and the pH of the soil as to how available those things are going to be for that crop to take up. So that's, that's the real challenge with those, those types of assessments. Um, it gives you a really nice number and you, you get a really nice, pretty report that you can put in a frame and put up on your wall that you, you did these tests, but it really, nobody can tell you what those results mean. Um, there are other uh, lab techniques that have been looked at in the past um, and used to be offered by some labs uh, that were called benchtop soil assays. Um, these can be essentially what they were is that you collected the soil from the field that you're interested in and you grew that in a lab and planted the crops that you're interested in right into that soil and managed it essentially over the winter as if it was going to be your crop the next year and looked for herbicide injury. Unfortunately, these tests typically had a pretty high error rate in the sense that they gave relatively high false negative and false positive test results. When you took the results from that test and you planted that same crop back into the field, you didn't get the, the result that you were expecting. So um, a false positive test was when you, um, you got uh, a hit on your lab sample, but you went to the field and nothing happened to the crop in the field. The crop looked fine. And that's maybe inconvenient, but it's not as big a problem as if you get a false negative that says that everything's rosy and then you go to the field and you've got injury. And so that really makes a lot of labs nervous in the sense that uh, now we've got a little bit of liability that if we tell somebody that it's okay to grow a crop and then they go and they injure their crop, um, we could be on the hook for uh, buying a crop from a, a producer and that gets to be pretty expensive. So um, the other thing, the other challenge with these things is that they're really finicky and you have to maintain them just right to get an accurate result. Um, sampling is a big source of error. So if you take your soil sample too deep, then you dilute that herbicide in that, that soil layer. And so you get a false negative uh, result in some cases. Uh, crop debris can act as, a, as essentially the same as organic matter and, and bind that soil up and not have it available or bind that herbicide up and not have it available for uh, the crop to take up. And so you, again, you get a false negative. Um, you can underwater or overwater it too much. And the problem with that is that it doesn't either release the herbicide into the soil enough so that the plant can take it up or it waters the, the herbicide right out of the soil and you get a, a false negative as well. Um, the other thing is that uh, fertilizer deficiencies can often mimic some of these herbicide injuries as well. And so if you've got um, infertility issues in that soil, you can 
get a false positive potentially um, or have confusing results, let's put it that way. The other thing that we often underestimate is how bright the sun is. And in order to be able to do these things inside, we have to have a really, really bright light source in order to mimic the, the brightness of the sun so that the plants actually grow the way that they're supposed to and don't end up being uh, a leggy vine, essentially, that we, we can't tell is growing properly or not. So we've had several labs that have offered this in the past and I'm not aware of any that are offering it now. Um, it's probably because it, it's, it's something where the demand is really infrequent. It only happens maybe once or twice every 10 years. And so for a lab to have an investment into all this infrastructure to be able to do that, uh, maybe doesn't make a whole lot of uh, sense from an economic standpoint. And so you end up with labs that maybe they've offered it, but then it's like, well, why are we sitting on this stuff when it's not being used now? So they just drop it and move on. Um, Dr. Jeff Shano at the University of Saskatchewan and his grad students did develop a benchtop assay that was based on uh, using soil pouches to measure and measuring root length as a result of that. Um, and it, it seemed to have some promise, um, but it really hasn't been developed sufficiently to be able to use it on a broad spectrum of herbicides and broad spectrum of crops. So it's still kind of in the infancy stage. And I think that it's something that would have to be developed further to be uh, of any great utility. Um, so what we're left with is the standard method, which is the, the field bioassay. And essentially the field bioassay is that the producer themselves uh, grows a strip of a, a crop that they're interested in into that field that may have that soil residue to see if it gets injured. Um, the real trick there is that they need to, it's demanding for space because you're putting a strip in there that you don't expect to ever take to market yield. Um, and the other thing is that you have to have it in a spot where it reflects your topography of your field and runs over some of those areas like hilltops that might be at high risk. Perfect. So shifting gears a little bit here, we know the risk of herbicide care was really high across, you know, a lot of areas of the province, which we can see in the risk maps that um, the ministry has recently released. But in terms of IMI herbicide carryover and the new recropping restrictions, um, which advise producers not to grow sensitive crops such as durum, canary seed or canola on land that received IMI applications this season. Um, so a lot of the land that received these IMI products were, you know, pulses or clearfield crops. How would you adjust your crop rotation on that land at a that's at a high risk for herbicide carryover? Uh, firstly, I'd be talking to the manufacturer uh, of any residual type products that I, I put on my fields uh, the previous, maybe not even just last year, but the year before, because we have had two years back to back now in some areas, particularly the south part of the province that have had back to back dry years. Um, so they may want to be looking further back than even last year as well. Um, so the, I'd be, I'd be talking to the manufacturers about what my most conservative cropping option would be. It is, it is kind of lucky the commodity prices seem to be relatively cooperative as far as being 
allowing some flexibility for next year as far as what crops might be feasible. Um, we need to take into account the residual fertility in each of those fields as well and match up the crops as best as we can to the residual fertility to be able to take advantage of that resource. Um, we may even want to entertain the idea of growing the same crop again on some high risk fields. Um, and I know that, that all the, the disease people are going to rankle at that a little bit. But if we consider that the high risk fields that we're talking about receive very, very little rainfall, then we wouldn't normally do this in a normal year. If we've got a really, really dry area, um, the disease organisms are not going to be any, any more active than the herbicide breakdown organisms. And so it's a, probably a pretty decent assumption to say that our baseline disease level is probably not going to be a whole lot higher in the spring of 2022 than it was in the spring of 2021. And so it may be something that producers might want to do in consultation with their agronomist, think about the idea and um, determine the risk uh, on their particular parcel of land um, on a case by case basis. Um, the other risk that comes with this is the volunteer pressure and selection for herbicide resistance or buildup of residual active ingredients that they're dealing with now um by using the same selection of herbicides again so um they may have to reevaluate those herbicide choices on those crops if they're going to grow them again as well so it's it's something that needs to be done with caution let's put it that way but um it it may be if people are backed into a corner it may be the thing that they have to do this year so one crop I know, like Durham is obviously in my mandate here at Sasqueed. So I know a lot of the brown soil zone where Durham is a staple crop. Um, a lot of them were significantly impacted by this announcement. So um, what advice would you give uh, to a Durham producer that's affected by the recent recropping restrictions? Oh, unfortunately, I don't have any magical solutions for these, these producers. They're, they, they, kind of have to play the hand that they've been dealt. Um, they, they may want to shift to bread wheat for a year um, or on those certain fields if I evaluate the risk of back-to-back -back, uh, of the same crop on the same field. So those are about the only solutions that, uh, that we might have for that kind of a, a situation. And do you have any advice on managing immune-tolerant crops conventionally? So in, if a producer has to substitute in some clear field canola? Well, I, I think they definitely want to avoid using the same selection of herbicides again. Um, again, for fear that we have another dry season and that we have these things accumulating to a greater degree in the soil and then you end up really getting backed into a corner um so essentially what we want to do is is grow them as a conventional crop or a non-clearfield type crop um so they they may have to go back to using edge or trifluralin on some of these fields um to give some baseline weed control 
um, and follow up with some more of the conventional herbicides. Uh, so they may be looking at some of the group ones for volunteer cereal control. Um, uh, they may be looking at, and I don't know if they can even get it anymore, or whether they can use mustard uh, in some fields in order to control some of that mustard. But with the soil residues that are in the field, there may not be a whole lot in the way of pressure from that those mustard related weed species. So that may be something that they can kind of take advantage of to a certain degree. Um, but just as a safety net, they want to make sure that they um, keep their seeding rate up to that five pound per acre um, kind of normalized seeding rate in order to help compete with, with the weeds in that field where they do emerge. Clark, is there anything else you'd like to mention maybe that we haven't covered today or any additional resources that might be useful to producers when looking to deal with herbicide carryover? Um, probably what producers can do is check out our herbicide carryover risk maps um, on our saskatchewan.ca website. Uh, if they go to that website and then the easiest way to find these things is just to type into the search field herbicide residues and then go to the page that shows up there um, that talks about herbicide residues and to find the maps they're at the very bottom of the page under related items um, uh, we unfortunately don't do embedded graphics on our web page so all of our uh, picturey kind of things are all at the bottom of the page Thank you for taking the time to be here with us today, Clark. You've provided a significant amount of insight and information that will be very valuable to producers as they look to plan for the 2022 crop season. You're very welcome. Thanks for calling me. Thank you again to Sarah Anderson with Saskatchewan Pulse Growers, Haley Tetro with Sask Wheat, and Keely Kondrachuk with Sask Canola for this podcast. Also, of course, thank you to Clark Brenzel, provincial specialist in weed control with the government of Saskatchewan for his knowledge. For more information on weed management in canola, including risk factors for herbicide carryover, please visit the weeds section at canolaencyclopedia.ca. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wetter.